Hey everyone, welcome back to Take Back Our Tech. It's Ramiro Romani, and this is the first episode of the Take Back Our Tech podcast. I wanted to do this originally because I wanted to venture outside the bounds of just talking about digital technology and the education because it can get dry sometimes, and there's also so much important stuff going on in the world. And so I wanted to talk about real events and technology and kind of the intersection of that. And I also think that this podcast will be really good to talk about technologies that aren't just digital. They could be physical or spiritual or even electrical uh, electrical in nature. And so um, this first episode is special because we're actually going to look at um, what happens when resistance movements get too big. And we're going to be looking at one country in particular, Pakistan, and the recent happenings of uh, what happened with their ex-prime minister, Imran Khan, and his rise and fall to power, and what happened when he got the people rallied up and actually marched on the capital, and the actions that the state state took to censor that and hide it further. And um, this is an important story because we need to know what our movements are going to need to do, or what they're what obstacles we're going to face when they get super big. I'm also not advocating that the political action taken by this previous prime minister and his political party are the way to go. I just think that it's an interesting and uh, important case study of what happens in real world activism. But before we get into that, I also just want to share my screen here. Let's see what we got here. Planet. I have this really bright light in my eyes. Here we go. Perfect. All right. So before we get into that, I do want to share with you, adding on to all this stress, uh, this civil unrest, uh, this inflation that Pakistan is currently facing. You guys might know this past month, we had a massive, massive round of flooding in Pakistan. And I'm going to show you a few pictures here. But I just want to talk about the scale of this flooding, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented rain um, and uh, floods happening in the western region of Pakistan that left 33 million people displaced. These are 33 million people without homes that are just kind of sitting wherever they can, wherever they can find shelter, um, living under tents, living under cloth. And so I just wanted to call attention to that because it's a total travesty. There was um, around over 1,500 people who have died so far. And these are some satellite images of the flooding of the Kabul River. So this was before uh, before any of the flooding happened. You can see that's just like a normal river. And this was after, and you can see the river has completely expanded outside of its banks and just kind of taken over and really flooded all these other different areas around the low areas around the river. And this was the case throughout the entire country. I mean, this was just a massive flood. I remember seeing another image where it showed that uh, big swaths of lands in Pakistan were actually just now oceans. So uh, that's ridiculous. And um, what I would encourage y'all to do and what I'm doing is I'm donating to this foundation, the EB Foundation, which is one of the largest, oldest charities in Pakistan and uh, has has a really good track record of doing humanitarian work. It was founded by one person. His name is Abdul Eddy. And um, he started off by taking care of the sick and cleaning them, literally having funeral services and 
going after the dead and, and taking care of them and doing proper burials and all that. And he managed to expand it into a bunch of other different services, important services like maternity services, ambulance services. And I think that there, if you are going to help towards this cause, they're probably, this is the right organization to donate to. Don't donate to the Pakistani government because that is super corrupt. Okay. And that will bring us into the story. Before we bring, go into the story, I just want to say the story spans several, several months, uh, maybe <laughs> maybe till the start of this year. So I'm definitely not going to get into the details. I don't want to get too mired in the politics, but I definitely think it's an interesting story to talk about. And of course, as the major, the major thing that everyone should be following, this story starts off with the invasion of Ukraine at the end of February this year. And what ended up happening was uh, Imran Khan happened to be meeting with Putin on the day of the invasion. He happened to be meeting with Putin on the day of the invasion. Um, completely what he says is that he hadn't planned on it. Obviously, it was just scheduled in advance and he went there and he still met with them on, uh, on that day. And that got him a lot of uh, international backlash, a lot of... Uh, as, as we'll see, a lot of people didn't like his decisions, didn't like that he wasn't condemning the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And when they asked him, hey, why, you know, why aren't you against this? Well, he had this to say, Pakistan's future is tied up with Russia in terms of gas, oil, and specifically wheat, because we have to import wheat from Russia because of 220 million population. When you start condemning people, you are taking sides. Taking a moral stand on international issues is very good, but when your country stands to suffer as a result of it, you have to have the luxury to be strong and rich enough to start taking sides, he added. Well, I think that rationally makes sense to me because now we're seeing the effects of all these sanctions on Russia, the effect that it's having on Europe, the exploding gas prices, uh, the exploding prices for heat, and also the gas prices that we've suffered here in the United States. I know I've definitely felt that in my wallet. And I can see why if you have a, a population that has a generally relatively low income level, how hurt, uh, how hurt it would be to add further sanctions. So that makes complete sense why he wouldn't be quick to condemn Russia. But of course, the situation escalated and there were 22 envoys, ambassadors from different countries of the, United, uh, the European Union, EU member states, that uh, in early March, was it early March? Yes. Um, early March asked him to publicly condemn the invasion of Ukraine. And um, they write, as heads of mission of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, we urge Pakistan to join us in condemning Russia's actions. So this planned, coordinated effort to really get as many countries as possible on the same page and to have the prime minister fall in line with that. Um, and of course, uh, he did not agree with that at all. And so on March 7th of this year, he says in a live speech, what do you think of us? Are we your slaves that whatever you say we will do? So he's pushing back against this foreign influence that's coming from the European Union, but really every country, as we'll see. And uh, he just, he's just not playing ball, you know. Um, and he's also feeling hurt from the previous agreements with NATO, NATO and Afghanistan, where uh, Pakistan helped in uh, fighting the Taliban and then kind of got left with dealing with the, with the leftovers. Um, and so he didn't feel supported in that front. 
And he's not going to go ahead and support another war here, and he's trying to remain neutral. Well, the very next day, the very next day, a no-confidence motion was put in the National Assembly. And um, so accused him of mismanaging the economy and poor governance in the toughest and just being a poor governor. And so they are looking to uh, start a vote again to have him get the required number of votes to have him stay in office. Or if he doesn't get the required numbers of votes, he would be replaced by another another political party. Pakistan has a bunch of political parties. Another one would take hold and replace him as prime minister. And it's important to note here that uh, for Khan's journey into politics, he was a former cricket star, a sports star for, for a decade. And then he eventually ended up getting into philanthropy and then into politics. And um, I can't say for sure that he is a, an out. He's not part of the established system. I definitely don't believe in uh, politics. I don't believe in that governance is the way to uh, progress humanity. But I do think that he is uh, he's in the outside now. He is an enemy of the state, and this is kind of showing how. So he might have had the backing of the government and world powers at one point, but he's definitely out of their good graces now. And we get to see exactly what happens. So once this no confidence motion was called, it led to a whole month of this crazy political struggle where the opposing political parties were uh, gaining seats in the National Assembly, taking over the uh, PTI party, which is Khan's political party. It stands for, let's see. Stands for Pakistan's Movement for Justice. And um, so this, they began to struggle over this. And there's this massive coup that takes place and they get enough, uh, they get enough seats over the next month to vote Khan out of office. But the speaker of the assembly actually rejects the no confidence motion and they have to go to the Supreme Court to reinstate the assembly because once Khan gets this rejected, he actually dissolves the government. He dissolves the government. You could say he makes it into a dictatorship without, without an assembly. And uh, the opposition goes to the Supreme Court, gets that ruled as unconstitutional, gets the assembly brought in, and then votes Khan out almost a month later in April. So this is what happens in April when the, this finally this no confidence vote uh, is approved and he's voted out of office. So we see massive protests. Khan calls on his supporters to have uh, massive protests in every country. And I'm not sure we're seeing this video. So let me just refresh the page. Great. Um, so not getting any images of that. Let me just pull up another There should be some Twitter images there. Okay, so I'm not I'm not getting the video to play, uh, and but I will say that there's a lot of images on Twitter if you search up Imran Khan's protests that he's got tens and thousands of people in every major city, and he's calling them to go show up to uh, these major cities and show their protests. Um, 
get rid of this vote of no confidence, call for fair re-elections and to put him back in power. So that's all really, you can see that he has uh, the people's movements. And I wish I could show you those, um, those videos on Twitter, but there's just massive amounts of people coming out in support for him. And a whole, so a whole month later, he's continuing on this rally and he also calls for a march to the Capitol. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, the uh, storming of the Capitol in the United States, but actually with, with more legs because he gets tens and thousands of people to show up and they go towards Islamabad. So he said that on May 25th, he asked the, um, he demanded that people march to the Capitol and call for dissolution of the National Assembly, which is the government, and call for a new general election. And then he openly calls the regime change a foreign conspiracy against Pakistan from the United States. They, uh, they used locals. He says in, the, it's in this regime change, they used locals, the most corrupt people who are ready to become part of any conspiracy to save their corruption. The conspiracy was hatched eight months ago, and I was alerted about it in June. And after August, I fully understood what was happening. We did our best to avoid it, but somehow, we, unfortunately, we couldn't stop it. So he's openly calling out, he's openly calling out the United States and, and uh, being involved in this regime change or coup, which I think is noteworthy because it's very rare that um, someone does this and they actually get national attention. And that will explain the backlash that we, we see later on. And I'm just trying to pull up some uh, notes here. He actually reveals reveals later that he got a letter, a secret letter from Donald Liu, a U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asia, which uh, which basically said, you know, if you don't play ball with Ukraine, there will be a no confidence motion against you. And that letter was dated um, the date. It was it, it was the previous month. So he held on to this letter for a few weeks. And then as he was about to be voted out in April, he brought it up and just made made sure that people knew that this was a foreign conspiracy. And so once he was voted out, he called for these massive protests. And what ends up happening is people march to Islamabad, tens and thousands of people, and the internet goes out at 5 p.m. Uh, on the May 25th. And so this was this is a organization that monitors uh, internet. They monitor the address space for different countries to see if there are outages. And they saw that uh, across the board, there were internet outages when um, people arrived in uh, Islamabad. So that just goes to show how important internet is in organizing social movements and uh, resistance in this fashion. And of course, they didn't just do, um, they, they cut off the internet, they tear gassed the protesters, they set up roadblocks, anything that they could do from getting, from preventing them to reach the capital. Um, again, I think this is super important. I'm not saying that going to go storm the Capitol is the most uh, valid way to do things or to get political change. I would much rather that people stay where they are and create change locally, um, foster relationships with local producers, trade outside of the system any way they can, don't feed into the banks, uh, don't pay taxes. Uh, that's, that's how you actually get... Um, societal change to occur, not necessarily marching on a capital, because as you see, when direct resistance meets direct response, 
and they'll do, uh, you, you'll just end up in this struggle. But I think it's worth noting because we're seeing how a massive, we can just pretend that this movement is organic and there's no paid, there's no, there's no paid element of this. It's actually the people that are rising up and they want, they want this new politician in power. And we see what happens when this happens at a, at a very large scale. And we just need to keep that in mind if we are using direct protesting. So in uh, August 21st, when um, late into this rally of uh, different speeches, he, an aide in his party, um, gets tortured, allegedly gets tortured. His name is uh, Shabazz Gil. And um, he, in police custody, is health deteriorated. And uh, so he calls out the police and also one of the judges on the case. And then he... Um, and then he uh, gets terrorism charges booked on him. So then he has a warrant out for his arrest. And he, uh, the, at this time, he gets these terrorism charges. And also the Pakistan Electronic Media Regulatory Agency, PEMRA, banned any of his speeches from being shown live on TV. Um, so that's a pretty important escalation in this. So they're trying to prevent him from growing his reach further from uh, promoting his, uh, from promoting resistance, from promoting overthrowing the government anymore. And they said that the opposition leader was leveling baseless allegations and spreading hate speech through his provocative statements against state institutions and officers. Again, they're, they're getting very close to, to civil war here. Um, and at this stage, they, uh, it's, they not only blocked his speeches from being shown online, but they disrupted YouTube in Pakistan. They disrupted the entirety of YouTube right before and after Imran Khan would go on and, and give his speeches. So I think it's telling that they wanted to prevent people from seeing it anywhere um, at all. And so this is another NetBlocks report, but it showed that they're measuring the uh, connectivity of different services within Pakistan a bunch of different internet service providers and all testing whether the YouTube platform is up. And it was down right before and it comes back right after the speech. And this is corroborated by a lot of uh, people, a lot of Pakistani citizens on Twitter sharing their, um, sharing their uh, experiences. So here I just want to talk about, now we're getting to the take back or tech part. I know we have to drudge through a lot of different politics, but how does this actually happen when when our movements get so big that they have to block down parts of the internet i just want to make it clear that how this actually happens well you have to start by understanding how the internet works and it's um the internet works just by a, through a collection of different networks and you can call these collections of different networks autonomous systems and these are uh they're responsible for geographical areas so a country might have you know up to it could have from a dozen to hundreds of autonomous networks, autonomous systems in, inside of it. And these ASs, as they're called, are super important because they define how your requests across the internet are routed. And so this is a, uh, a survey of worldwide censorship techniques by the Internet Engineering Task Force. And a lot of their experience has been watching other countries across the pond, Eastern countries like China, 
which of course has a great firewall of China, and observing the different techniques countries have used to block off the internet from others. So I was doing research in the different ways that they could potentially block YouTube, and I came down to uh, this at the bottom this technique adversarial route announcement, which essentially these uh, autonomous systems, uh, they use something called BGP, a border gateway protocol. And this is like the mailing protocol of the internet. It defines how the routes, uh, your packets, packets being information that your computer is sending to other computers. If you're making a request to YouTube, how does that travel across the internet? So BGP is responsible for that. And it can be controlled, the BGP routing can be controlled at these autonomous systems. So that's exactly what happened here, or I'm speculating that's what I think happened here. And it's exactly what happened in 2008 when Pakistan Telecom censored YouTube, kind of the same thing that's happening at the request of the government by changing its BGP routes of the website. So it's important to note here when uh, you change BGP routes, all of these different autonomous systems are constantly communicating with each other. They're sending each other pings like, hey, the location for this resource has changed. It's now, um, it's now at, this, at this address, and here's the best route to get there. So they're constantly talking to each other, um, talking about the right way to get to different servers and different resources. So back in 2008, what they did was they changed the location of YouTube to point to their own servers through the Pakistani telecom um, to the Pakistani telecom servers. And so what people saw, not only in Pakistan, but throughout the world when they visited YouTube was Pakistan telecom. So obviously since then, there were all updates to how BGP was handled across these autonomous systems to prevent censorship, things like these. But we can, what my speculation is, is that they use a technique similar to this to make requests to YouTube's within the country, just not resolve at all, not go to their proper location and timeout. And there's a bunch of other different ways in the layers of the uh, internet stack here that you can use to prevent this, to, uh, to block YouTube throughout a region. But I just decided to focus on this one. Uh, it's also important to note that NetBlock notes that you can get around this by uh, using a VPN service. So by instead of, instead of sending your request directly to YouTube, you send a request to a VPN service, which needs to be outside the bounds of Pakistan and um, can redirect, you know, send that request to YouTube, send it back to you and do that in an encrypted, an encrypted method. Now, the issue here is that Pakistan started to ban VPNs um, close to a decade ago. And um, they're cracking down on that. They're not allowing VPNs unless they're registered by the state. So they're already having a trouble with that. But this just goes to show how important using a VPN is when it comes to working around censorship. So this is one possible technique that they could have used to censor information in Pakistan. Um, just some more information here about BGP. Uh, they're constantly communi communicating to each other and um, they're exchanging information about routes. Um, and here is something that's hypocritical that I know that this censorship is now being used against the current, um, being, being used against Imran Khan. But when he was in office, Pakistan was already using uh, uh, censorship techniques to cut off internet access to this tribal region in Pakistan, which went without internet for, um, for a very long time. So in 2016, 
4.5 million residents of this tribal region woke up to an internet suspension um, that cut off 3G, 4G, and portable internet devices. And this internet has been shut down and, and limited since then and was, uh, I don't believe it was recently reinstated. But I think it's, um, I think it's just telling how Khan was in power during the censorship, but also he is complaining outright when it's used against him. So it's just kind of how the hypocrisy goes. Okay, I think that's everything for the written portion today of just looking at local events and how technology ties into that. I hope you see how important the ability to communicate with each other is and how now you can see some techniques that governments will use to block it. And you can see that when you have someone in power with a really wide reach, they will use everything they can. You know, uh, this is more than just getting a YouTube channel banned. This is turning off YouTube for the entire country. They are not afraid to shut off the internet at whim. So we really need to sit down and look at different solutions we can do to stay in touch with with each other. And so maybe a follow-up to this video, I can talk about if anything like that exists or how we can better create the uh, robust local networks instead of having to rely on resources outside the country. It's also um, worth looking at another paper here that talks about the choke point ability. The um, Let's see if I can pull that one up. Okay, sharing my screen. Where is it? There we are. So here's a, uh, this is a paper done by Curtis G. Lebia, and it talks about how censorship can happen using autonomous system choke points and the, uh, the probability of censorship happening based on the setup of the autonomous systems. So you can kind of see here that when um, on a country's border, when they only have a few autonomous systems that actually dictate the routes for different websites in that region, it's much easier to control, right? Because they only need to update the tables, update the routing tables on these border autonomous systems. But a country with a lot of different autonomous systems need a, needs a lot more control to cause the same type of censorship. So they do an analysis of the different countries and the effects here. Let's see, so they have this potential um, for for this, and uh, as the different autonomous systems change, they, uh, the the likelihood of it being censored because of those border those border autonomous systems also increases. So you can see here the uh, how over time that that probability changes. So in Great Britain, that probability changes when they were dealing with um, dealing with censorship, and uh, there was this whole movement against uh, trying to ban pornography. Um, and there is also different different social movements in India that occurred. And then China, of course, got more sophisticated and really cracked down in the past decade on their great firewall of China. And so you could see that they just skyrocketed. So these are all awesome papers. And um, 
We don't have time to get too detailed into it right now, but I will definitely link it into the show notes. I just want to stop, stop by saying that I think that this is a real resistance movement. I think that their goals, they may not be, they may not be the right goals for humanity. I think they're just trying to get themselves back in power, but they also, I think they need to realize that they already have the power. They already have people willing to come out and stand up and protest, and that's the start to it. What if you could get these uh, people um, invigorated enough to start their own local economies, to start putting food in the ground? With the enormous backing that Imran Khan has, he does have a lot of financial backing, he could get, he could get important industries started for these people, and he's, he's got a lot of loyal followers. So that's my, that's my uh, call out to him. It's like, what exactly are you doing? You, you're, you're going up against the government and you're, you're losing. The West is not hearing of this struggle at all. No one's really reporting on this and the situation is getting worse. So if you, he is acting like he's, he's not really giving the government their authority in that space, but he can kind of expand past that. He, he's got to create local resilience. There's got to be community connection and people who are willing to govern themselves. And so he needs to stand back as a leader and not look to get himself voted into power, but to show people that they already have the power, that they're already willing to come out in droves, that these protests that, again, I wish I could show you the videos on, on Twitter and YouTube, but these protests can't be stopped. There's too many people. Um, they're completely overtaking the cities. And this is, um, you know, this is not the this is not the exit and build philosophy. This is more the uh, stay and fight philosophy, hold hold the fort philosophy, where you're staying and um, you're going up against, and you're you're asking them you're asking them for more permissions, for more leeway to have things your way. But that's just that's just not going to happen because we see that there's a massive control grid from the European Union, from these external influences that are keeping a tight hold in Pakistan through funding their military and um, through, through just keeping these other political parties in power. So that's very hard to do. This, if this is a people's movement, which what the PTI party promises itself to be, then it really needs to start with the people. I'm really looking if, if uh, there's a lot of Middle Eastern countries in turmoil right now, and it really needs to start with people's solutions. We can't just have mindless, uh, mindless protesting without a purpose, without a cause. Um, if it's just going to fail when you don't get voted in, then nothing's going to happen because politics sucks. And uh, that's one of my realizations in looking through this. But I think that's everything for today. I hope you've enjoyed this, this podcast. And this is the very first episode. If you want to watch this live, you can always watch it on Odyssey, uh, Rumble, and Float. Those are the three platforms we're streaming to now. I'm also looking to stream it to Telegram. And of course, you can subscribe to our mailing list at takebackourtech.org. And you're going to be notified of any time we do live streams. I'm hoping to do this at least once a week. So we'll see how that goes because it definitely took a lot of effort to research this month-long's events. But uh, I'm excited to get some new content to you. And um, uh, let me know if you enjoyed this or if I, if I got something wrong. If you want to correct me on something, let me know at the contact form at takebackertech.org. Um, and just remember, we all have power. As we can see from these protests, we, we all have power. So just remember, our connection is sacred. Much love. Until next time.